Good afternoon, and what a glorious spring day here in Colorado Springs. Welcome to the second day of the Colorado College State of the Rockies Conference, our third annual conference. The college has assembled a group of diverse experts to address the current issues facing Western ranchers and the dilemma facing our country of balancing intelligent environmental stewardship of our land with wise agricultural management and prudent economical process, uh, practices. I'm Jack Wold. I'm a member of the Colorado College Board of Trustees, an alumni and a, a parent of a senior and also an incoming freshman. So I think you can say that our family bleeds the black and gold of the tigers. But here tonight, or this afternoon, we're here to discuss an issue that I think is really going to be a lot of fun. I would like to acknowledge the tremendous work that Walt Hickox and the CC Economics Department have put together in, in, in formulating our program. We would also need to recognize the wonderful job and effort of Caitlin O'Brady. Caitlin, would you stand, please? And Brian Hurlbut. Where's Brian? Here he is, Brian. He's Together, they've, they've, they've shown a great organizational ability to put this thing together and to keep us on task and also on time. I also would be remiss if I didn't thank the, the Colorado College Administration and President Celeste for encouraging and supporting the State of the Rockies initiative. I'd like to go over a few housekeeping uh, house rules, if we might. If anybody has cell phones, I'd like to have you please turn those off. We will have a question and answer period at the end of the panelist discussion so that if you do have questions, we have microphones in the, down here in front. Uh, please remember those questions. Either write them down if they're for speakers earlier in the, in the program. But we will have a, a, a question and answer period at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the presentations. Also, after the, our challenge speaker, uh, Dan Daggett, where there will be about a 15-minute break. So with that, I'd like to introduce our first speaker. Andrew Yarborough is a 2000-2006 student researcher at Colorado College and the State of the Rockies Project. He is from Roxbury, Connecticut, graduated from the Taft School in Watertown, Connecticut. Andrew is a senior international political economy major and recently completed his senior thesis entitled East Asian Economic Regionalism, a Proposal for Sustained Economic Growth and Stability. After spending his junior year at the London School of Economics and a summer studying at the Universidad de Sal Salamanca in Spain, Andrew focused this year on his thesis research in helping to publish the State of the Rockies report card. He is passionate about environmental protection and land conservation in the Rocky Mountain region, and it's a pleasure for me to introduce a friend of mine, Andrew Yarborough. Welcome, and uh, thank you for coming inside on this beautiful day. I know it probably wasn't easy. Um, before I start, I'd like to thank uh, Jack Wold, who I've known for about eight years now. Um, and uh, he's just a great guy, and I'm glad to have him moderating this. Um, and also Dan Daggett and our panel of respondents today, Doc and Connie Hatfield, Dale Laster, Brian Roeder, and John Schiffer, uh, for being with us to discuss ranching in the Rockies, a very, very important topic in this report card. Uh, I'd also like to thank the State of the Rockies team for their support and help with this topic. Uh, in particular, Caitlin O'Brady and where's Jared? 
Jared Capella for their uh, as being the co-researchers and co-authors uh, on this on this topic, and hopefully everyone can join us for the barbecue proceeding this uh, this talk at 5:45. Should be a lot of fun. Now, uh, ranches and farms are an integral part of the Rockies. Not only do they preserve the open space and way of life that we hold so dear here in the Rockies, but it is also vital to the social fabric which make up our many rural communities. This section of the report card determined that ranching in the Rockies is threatened and we risk losing it. First, we evaluated the economic status of ranching. What exactly is happening with ranching as a livestock producing business and what does this mean? We then looked at various forces challenging traditional ranching. Ranching and farming has always been a variable enterprise but new trends in the agriculture industry and here in the Rockies are making it increasingly difficult. Population growth continues at a very rapid pace and many new challenges have appeared in the last several decades. Lastly, this section examines a few ways that ranchers are trying to improve the economic well-being of their ranches and protect their ranch from development and environmental degradation. As part of the State of the Rockies Summer Research Project, we traveled to numerous ranches and communities around the region and saw firsthand what exactly these ranchers are doing. We have the great privilege of hearing about those, some of these innovative practices from our panel here today, so stay tuned. Now, the, the economic significance of agriculture in the United States has declined in the last century. Nationally, farm output as a total share of GDP has declined from 11% in 1945 to just 2.2% 2 .2 in 2004, and overall farm em employment has declined from 6.5% in 1940 to just 0.65% today. Additionally, farmers and ranchers forced to earn off-farm income has increased from 30% in 1930 to 93% today. And these are just a few of the many statistics which I could cite um, to indicate the declining economic significance and declining economic cl climate of ranching and agriculture in general. Now, here in, the, here in the Rockies, ranches are struggling to meet their costs. As real commodity prices have declined and input costs risen, smaller farms and ranches which cannot achieve economies of scale have been driven out of the market. Rising management, labor, and other input costs without corresponding increases in meat prices means that ranches are losing money and they're losing it fast. For example, beef prices in 1991 were on the average $1.06 a pound. While in 2001 that price had only risen to $1.11, just a five cent increase. When we take inflation into account over that same period, which was actually 28.25%, the actual price of beef declined by 25 cents. To make matters worse, during that 10-year period, beef prices sank as low as 60 cents a pound. As this figure here shows, which our research team uh, compiled using data from the 2002 and 1987 census of agriculture, over the past 15 years, there's been a drastic increase in farms and ranches experiencing net losses. And the dark blue indicates Counties where more than 70% of farms and ranches are, having, are experiencing net losses and the light blue uh, indicates counties where farms and ranches are experiencing, or 50 to 70% of ranches and farms are experiencing net losses, sorry. Now, as you can see, the blue area in 2002 is 
quite a bit larger, um, both light blue and dark blue. I'd just like to highlight the uh, area down in northern Arizona. Um, just something to point out. Here in the Rockies, there are many forces challenging traditional ranchers, but we looked at just five in particular in the report card. Population growth leading to development, to consolidation of the livestock industry, a shortage of federal grazing permits, conservation ranchers, and government subsidies. Today I'm only going to talk about the first three, but for further information on government subsidies and conservation ranchers, uh, please see the 2006 report card. Population growth is by far the most threatening force to ranchers here in the Rockies. At an average of 4% annually, this has meant a huge increase in development over the past several decades. Total land and agriculture in the Rockies declined by an average of 1 million acres per year on average since 1964. That amounts to 25% of total agricultural land. Some estimates even say that another 24 million acres of ag land are expected to be converted to other uses by the year 2020, and that's just 14 years away. This map on the right here shows which counties have lost the most ag land. Um, all the counties in green uh, are counties which have lost agricultural land, some of which have lost almost 50% of their agricultural land. And I urge you to take a closer look at this map on page 24 of the 2006 report card. It is a little bit confusing. I sometimes have trouble uh, seeing exactly what it, it's saying. Um, now, not only does population growth and development drive up the land price, and that means higher property taxes, and, uh, and provide a very large incentive for ranchers and farmers to sell their land for a very good profit, it also creates a wide range of indirect impacts for communities across the West. New employers must compete with ranch owners for local labor, leading to higher wages and more competition for good employees. New residents also require more public services, meaning even higher tax rates in these communities. All of these factors, I think, have a very large effect on these ranchers. At the beginning of the 20th century, most farms and ranches in the West and across the U.S. were small, family-run, and labor-intensive. With the rising costs and because small ranchers are unable to achieve economies of scale, over time, the largest ranches and companies have gained a larger and larger share of the market. Small ranchers make up more than half of cattle operations across the United States, but control only 22% of the market share. This means that small ranchers are price takers and are at a huge disadvantage because they cannot spread their costs over a wide range of, or a large number of livestock. Inevitably, this makes them more likely to experience losses and go out of business. This figure on the right here is a good indicator of what I'm talking about. As years have passed, the number of farms has declined while their average size has increased. Um, it's pretty drastic, as you, as you can see. Uh, although production costs are lower for consolidated livestock industry, which then translate into lower consumer prices, uh, which is good for some of us, and a more competitive agricultural position in the rest of the world, it has severe impacts on rural areas. For instance, communities which once had a number of locally, lo locally rooted and different ranches are finding just a single producer in their place. We lose that ranching way of life. As more than 20,000 ranchers in the West hold federal grazing permits, which is 50% of all ranchers, they are a vital part of successful ranching operations. 
That revenue earned from extra land given by grazing permits is often essential to staying in business. Unfortunately, however, there is a growing shortage of these permits in the past several decades. Without this extra land, ranchers are forced into an ever tighter position and are often driven out of business and forced to sell their land. The figure on the right here is a good illustration of the amount of land that many of the Rockies states have in, have in federal grazing permits. And what is at stake if those grazing permits continue to decline as some people hope? Three of these eight, eight Rocky states have more than 20 million acres of federal grazing permits. Now, but with, with anything that is in trouble and anything that is struggling, uh, ranchers need to and are adapting. With all of these threatening forces and with the poor ec economic state of ranching in general, ranchers are adopting new and many times innovative practices to increase their revenues. Sprawl and exurban development are now viewed as great environmental threats, so ranchers and environmentals are working together to identify ways to protect ranches from development and to protect it from environmental degradation. More and more ranchers are also realizing that a healthy business requires healthy land and are using more ecologically sensitive techniques on their ranches. Our panel today will go into depth on some of these new practices so I'm not going to talk too much about it here today. Um, but basically, our research looked at two common and noteworthy approaches. One, the diversification of the ranch, and two, new management techniques. Ranchers throughout the West have started using their land to generate additional revenue. Examples of this include hunting, leading hunting and fishing expeditions, producing grass-fed and organic beef, and dude ranching. And, but these are, these are only a few of the many ways ranches are diversifying. And the other approach, often used in conjunction with a, with a diversification of the livestock producing business, new management techniques have allowed ranches to become more efficient, more ecologically sound, and in many cases decrease costs significantly. And these new practices are becoming more prevalent as success stories spring up around the Rockies. This is key to the survival of ranching and the preservation of open space, the ranching way of life, and rural communities in the Rocky region. For more information, I know some of you have seen this slide already. Uh, see the 2006 report card, uh, which is available outside on the info table. And also visit New West and Headwaters News to read articles and to share your thoughts. And thanks, thanks again for coming today. Thank you very much, Andrew. And obviously, you've put in a heck of a lot of work on this, and you're committed to it, and, and it shows. So. Thank you uh, for your presentation. Our challenge speaker today is Dan Daggett. Dan has been an environmental activist for 32 years. In 1992, he was designated one of the 100 top grassroots environmental organizers in the United States by the Sierra Club. Recently, Dan's approach has changed. He has come to realize that humans have played a vital role in sustaining many of the Earth's ecosystems, and that removing us from the ecosystems would damage them as much or even more than removing the species we think of as natural, such as wolves, uh, beavers, bullfrogs, uh, you name it. His new book, the Gardener, Gardeners of Eden, Rediscovering Our Importance to Nature, has been called the most important environmental manifesto since Aldo Leopold's Land Ethic. Daggett's first book, Beyond the Rangeland Conflict Toward a West That Works, has been recognized as one of the most important books recently written about rangeland issues. 
Dan founded and serves as the CEO of EcoResults, a not-for-profit organization which finds developmental funds for land managers seeking to run <clears throat> and turn their operations into a means to restore and sustain environmental values. Please welcome to the podium Dan Daggett. See, I've got to rearrange here a little bit. Wake my computer up. Ah. And I assume the RGB will go away. There, it went away. Well. Uh, we got to get going. We got a long way to go. Uh, I'm going to be talking about some things here in some ways that you probably won't hear a lot in other parts of the, conf uh, the conference. So we'll be uh, discussing some concepts, and I'll be showing you some photos that I hope uh, make the rest of this conference more interesting and stimulating. I hope you remember some of these things as the conference goes on and you hear these again. The, the, t uh, the title of my talk is uh, The New Ranch, A Means Toward Equal Protection for the Land. Well, uh, first of all, what's a new ranch? Uh, that's a term. The new ranch was uh, the first one to use it as a uh, oh, uh, proper uh, name in, in situations like this was Courtney White of the Quivira Coalition, uh, a kind of new paradigm with regard to rangelands environmental group in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I just took, because I helped uh, found uh, the Quivira Coalition, I just took some liberty to uh, attach a, a briefer meaning to it today. Uh, the new ranch is a means to heal the land and sustain it in a healthy condition using the ancient symbiosis between humans, herd animals, plants, soils, and, and lots of other things. That sounds like something to be good to say at a college. Uh, <laughs> now that I read it, it's a little highfalutin. But uh, it's also a, a means, the new ranch is also a means to, for ranchers who are doing this sort of thing to find new ways of support in order to stay in business, the kinds of things that Andrew was talking about. This is uh, another way to add to his list. But the second half of the title of equal protection for the land, equal protection from what? Well, equal protection for the land to me means holding all forms of land management, including protection, equally accountable. Well, boy, we're off on a tangent now. I mean, what's that all about? Uh, how do you, I've, I've been noticing, uh, I just listen for this word, and every time I hear it, it just sort of, I hear a little ding that goes with it too, the word protection. And it's awful hard to hear the word environment without the word protection right after it. Uh, most of the speakers here have talked about protecting the environment. We've got to protect it from this, and we've got to protect it from that, and protect it, and protect it, and protect it. But, uh, frankly, protection as a management approach, as a management uh, practice, doesn't always work. Uh, take a look at the photo. This land that Al Medina is monitoring right now, this is a piece of rangeland in central Arizona. It's been protected since 1947 when it was in pretty terrible shape, but it's not in all that great a shape now. So what has uh, almost 60 years of protection done for this uh, land? When I ask Al, who's the chief scientist with regard to this 
uh, piece of land called the Drake Exclosure on the Prescott National Forest. He says, well, it probably looked a lot like it does now. This was overused. It was, there was a, a settlement nearby here where the people who built uh, the railroad that went through this area used this land pretty hard for quite a number of years. And it was in such rough shape that in 1947, the Forest Service built a fence around it and used a number of different techniques in order to try to figure out what they could do to heal really damaged land like this. Uh, one of the techniques they used is protection. They took part of this land and they set it aside and no humans have done anything except go and look at this and perhaps take some measurements off of it since 1947. Well, you know, maybe it was just so messed up that nothing's going to help it. Well, but there's a problem with that. This is the land right outside the fence that hasn't been protected. This has been ranched and not, it's, been, it's, it's one of the better ranchers in terms of this kind of management that I know in Arizona. But uh, he hasn't done anything special here. As a matter of fact, uh, this is a part of his ranch that uh, he doesn't really concentrate that much on. And even in spite of that, he's been able to do that much better than protection. There's a better shot of the same area. And you can see the fence in the background there with a sign on it that says this is a protected area. You know, don't do this and don't do that. So here's, here's another an example of the same sort of thing that uh, we really have millions of acres of around the West in the arid parts of the West, Arizona, Nevada, oh gosh, Idaho, you name it. Uh, we've got lots of areas like this that are, in essence, protected from human use because there's not a whole lot of stuff to do out there now, especially in terms of ranching. I mean, you wouldn't graze cattle on that. There's nothing to eat. I mean, you'd have a rough time grazing mice on that. Uh, so what's going on? No, protection. We're going to protect the land. If we were trying to, to protect that land to heal it, uh, what would we get? Here's, here's another. You know, I've got lots of these pictures. This is an old one from an old slideshow, so I've got the text still on it. Um, there are plenty of cases where protecting the, the land hasn't worked, I say. And on the right side of the fence, grazing was removed from that side of the fence. This is down near Phoenix in 1937. And the other side of the fence has been, quote, has been overgrazed, what we call overgrazed uh, since well before 1937. And look at the difference. You know, I, I talked to a bunch of uh, old folks who support uh, environmental groups at one time who, who give grants to them, and I said, You've, you folks here have spent millions, maybe even billions of dollars creating the difference on both sides of that fence. Did you get your money's worth? Well, I mean, uh, it doesn't work that way everywhere. I mean, this is not that simple. If it was that simple an issue, we'd all figure it out. This is an area where there's never been any cattle. There have been grazers, but not for quite a while because bighorns could get up there, and the wild goats that used to live in this area near Williams, Arizona, can get up there. We've got pretty good biodiversity. There's reasons for that. We don't have enough time to talk about them. <laughs> so we'll go on here and look at another photo. It's the same sort of thing. Uh, of, there you go. There's 100 years of protecting the land. It started out as a, as a native grassland that was had so much grass growing on it, they actually hayed it, the folks that lived back there. We've got pictures of hay wagons in this area, them cutting this for hay. And then it was turned into the uh, Santa Rita Experimental Range, and they started uh, managing it with protection in mind and less and less grazing, tried to make it better. In 1951, it looked like that. In 2003, it looked like that on the right. Another thing you're going to notice about the side, about the 2003 photo, is there's no soil there anymore. 
I mean, we're down to rocks and, uh, and dirt. But in terms of an active and living soil, not the same thing as on the uh, 1902 uh, image. So, uh, oh, <laughs> I go, I take pictures of these. This is down in the Verde Valley. It's kind of an interesting photo. Look at the difference on both sides of that. I have no idea how long that exposure has been in there. But we just took a ride by there. We're looking at the Verde at the time. So, uh, you know, the results of protection looked a little bit, at least in those examples that I showed you, some of them, uh, like the results of overgrazing, right? So uh, uh, what does the new ranch have to offer us in dealing with this dilemma? Well, here's a ranch that's uh, right next to the one in the previous photo, which you can now see in the upper right-hand corner, and the photos were taken on the same day just essentially right across the fence. And, well, same weather, same soil, same plant species on both sides of that fence, same season, the photos were taken on the same day. The greener ranch has more cows on it, no surprise. The only difference is stewardship. That ranch, the main photo, is managed as what we would call a new ranch with environmental value in mind. This guy, whoops, we're on to the next. It's on a hair trigger. Uh, so, and, well, what we found out is that that difference between those two sides of that fence, we can create that difference in the same side of the fence if we use the methods of the new ranch. If we use the tools of ranchers, cattle, elbow grease, uh, organic material, if we use those and seeds, if we use that, we can take land that's in really rough shape like this. This is a mine near Austin, Nevada. There it is, seeds, hay, cows. There it is, one year later. Actually, that's six months later, eight months later, and here it is a year later. Bingo. The new ranch. Here's another thing you can do with the new ranch. Notice this. That's the fire. You can see where the fire burnt and where it didn't burn. Dead trees mark the area that burned. Notice where the fire stopped? At the fence, separating the game range on the right, a preserve, and Chase Hibbard's new ranch, the Seaborn Ranch. Effective storage, what to do, how to do that? In California, they tell us, keep the plants around your house hydrated so they won't burn. Well, he kept the plants on his ranch hydrated so that that fire stopped on a straight line, on a fence. You can use the new ranch to eat fire breaks. This is a, this is a project down near Prescott, Arizona, where Navajos, uh, the ad, uh, let's see, uh, an ad was put out, a uh, call for Navajo sheep, Navajo goats, uh, to use in grazing fire breaks on, uh, around uh, Prescott, Arizona. So about 600, uh, uh, some, uh, some Navajo folks volunteered about 600 sheep to go to uh, summer camp. Uh, because the drought was really, really bad on the reservation and there was not much for these goats to eat. So brought them down to Prescott, turned them loose on this area that's on the, the, the fire side of Prescott where the fires are going to come from, where the wind blows them into the town. And the, the most recent fire got right up to the edge of town and burned some houses, put the goats in there, ate fire breaks. And not only that, but notice that they revitalized the vegetation that was already there. Those are native grasses, and look how green they are. They're not going to burn, at least not while they're green like that, and they also provide good nutrition for the wildlife. 
that wasn't able to eat the decadent moisture or the decadent plants that were there before. We even do it at Diablo Canyon in California. Use goats to graze around that to keep that from being susceptible to fire. And goats are also used to, uh, to eliminate noxious weeds, the same sort of a deal. Actually, I know a goat herd, Lanny Lamming, that did a project right here in Colorado Springs uh, over a number of years. She was uh, grazing to get rid of, uh, oh, let's see, Ceasel, Teasel, and a bunch of other weeds that were a real problem. And as I understand it, uh, she never sent me the photos for it, but she had great success. Uh, goats are now being used in the vineyards in California to eat the weeds from among the grapes. And uh, we can use various uh, methods. The goats are very trainable. You can tell them not to eat the grapes by putting some bad-tasting stuff on grapes, and uh, they make the connection, and then they won't eat the grapes even when the bad-tasting stuff isn't on it. Uh, the, the fellow here, uh, uh, Bob Blanchard, said he'd let me use the photos, but I had to give him credit. So there is the... <laughs> There's Bob in his in his boots <laughs> onto the next. Oh yeah, and here you know. So one of the things you can produce uh, while you're producing all this environmental value, you're producing another uh, environmental value, and that's healthy food. We've got the Hatfields here to talk all about this sort of stuff. I know one of the things that I've noticed is about a lot of the solutions we're talking about as we talk about protecting and protecting and protecting in order to solve our environmental problems is we're ending up making what used to be the source of our wealth, the source of a lot of the things we use, the stuff we eat, the stuff we wear, it used to be the basis for our economy. Now we're making it into a dependent because it has to, you, we have to use regulation and we have to hire, hire all these uh, bureaucrats uh, and all this personnel and, and the people to monitor. And, I mean, yeah, I was, I was sitting next to a guy on the plane on the way up. He had a, a book of regulations, and it was extremely thick, and he was going through marking all the things that were important to him. I have no idea what the regulations are about, but we're turning everything into a matter of regulation. And it really strikes me as weird as when you turn the land from a source of wealth into a dependent. And I, and I know that is not going to have a good impact. Oh, yes. Ranchers, what are they watching? <laughs> They're watching a bird. They're watching an endangered bird, the southwestern willow flycatcher. This is one of the most impressive success stories that I know of. And um, this is a, a ranch in New Mexico. It's a U-Bar ranch. It's managed by uh, Mr. David Ogilvy, who is the fellow farthest to your left there. Uh, one of the things that's important about this ranch is it is the home of the largest known population of southwestern willow flycatchers. We're finding that rural stewardship, or the new ranch, actually can be one of the most effective means of creating habitat for and replacing endangered and threatened habitat for, end for endangered species. This has the largest known population of southwestern willow flycatchers on it. But not only that, they're the most, they're the most naturally prolific population. They're increasing the, the fastest. And uh, just a, as a little side note, they prefer areas where they share the riparian area with cattle. So in 2002, uh, this one of the, well, there were 156 pairs of southwestern flycatchers were uh, uh, counted on the U-Bar Ranch. And the U-Bar Ranch has a preserve, one upstream and one downstream of it. And on that same year, those two preserves had exactly zero 
pairs of endangered flycatchers on them. Even though the habitat was quite similar, same river, same trees, same situation, same weather. Zero, 156 to nothing. But that's not all that's unique about the U-bar. The U-bar also has more common blackhawks, more spike dates to threaten fish, large population of the well, you can read it, and the highest density of nesting songbirds known to exist in North America. Well, for a while, we were trying to protect that place, which would have meant getting rid of David Ogilvy, and there was actively a, a movement afoot to remove his management from the river. Since then, we've woke, woke up, and now uh, the uh, critical habitat that's been designated for the southwestern willow flycatcher makes an exception to Ogilvy's ranch, and he's allowed to manage as he would. He was not, however, uh, he did not get approval quickly enough to be able to expand that habitat, which he could have, exp uh, he was wanting to expand to make it even more effective. But, so what, you know, how does this, why does this work? I mean, we've been hearing forever that, that humans make things worse. That's why, that's why the word protection is just used as sort of like a mom and apple pie word every time we talk about an environmental problem. The solution to it is always protection because we assume that what we've got to do is get the people off. But people have been part, humans have been part of nature for, well, as long as we've been here. We've been, we've been performing roles for nature that really no other species has been able to do quite as well as us. No other species can start fire. We've been one of the best fire starters. We're one of the best dam builders along with, uh, with beaver. And on, we're one of the best herders along with wolves and hyenas and lions, but we do that too. All these things we have done for nature. And yet when we remove some of those other species, we say, oh my God, we're going to, you know, what's the impact of this going to be? We can't do that. But humans are removed, as, and it's considered to have a good impact. Here's a, this is a, out in the Nevada desert, uh, it's an example of herding, trapping, moving, collecting animals by using a, a trap. What we think this is, is that it was a, uh, it was, it was a, a little berm used to collect ducks when this was a marsh when this was being managed in an entirely different way. And some friends of mine, the Tiptons, now want to turn this back into a marsh just by using the new ranch processes that you have seen. So let's see, how are we doing? Here's an example of humans fitting into another habitat that we think of as no, kind of like the, the prime example of what nature can do if you leave her alone. This is the prime example of the primordial wilderness. This is the Amazon. And look at the examples of past management there. The hummocks that you see, the high hills with trees on them, we think that humans built those too. They built them to stay above the water. All the dikes and stuff were made to direct the water while it was there and to control it and keep it in certain areas when it was receding so that they could trap fish and stuff like that. These things are all over the world. We know humans used fire in, uh, to, in huge ways uh, to, uh, to manage the environment, to ranch. I was reading a book about Genghis Khan the other day, and it talked about how he hunted, and how the Mongols hunted when... Uh, back during the time when there was a Genghis Khan. And what they would do is they would form circles and they would drive the animals in. They would herd them into the middle. They'd kill the ones they wanted and turn the rest loose. You can read that about just about any place on the planet. There are all over Arizona and probably all over 
this state, there are traps. Traps to catch bighorn, traps to catch antelope, traps to catch elk and deer. Corrals, where they used various assorted fences to funnel the animals into a certain place. And you can go and if you look around, you can find the pictographs of the hunt, showing them moving the animals and showing what kind of an animal that particular trap was for. We've been ranching for a real long time all over the world. The new ranch really isn't new at all. It's a very old ranch. Another thing we've talked about is global warming. Well, the new ranch has been proved to be one of the most effective means of combating global warming. What we found, uh, this is a picture of a ranch in Utah, but most recently I've worked with a rancher in North Dakota, where by moving the animals on and off, kind of like the bison used to move on and off as they were pursued by various Indian hunters, they found that they have created a pump. I call it lub-dub grazing whereby when the, the animals bite the grasses and the grasses have to regrow in order to replace that, they slough off just a little bit of root material into the soil, which contains carbon. And you do this over and over and over again, thousands and thousands of times, and what you have is a carbon pump. You pump carbon into the soil, the animals do, with the help of, of humans, out of the atmosphere, and you create the black soils for which the... Uh, the Great Plains were famous, and which were starting to lose, but we're replacing them, replenishing them in some of the areas where this type of new ranching is being used. An acre of healthy grassland is as effective in cleaning the air as uh, an acre of rainforest. Open space. So, By keeping the new ranch in business, by coming up with a way, I'm the head of a group called Eco Results now, where we try to find ways to, to pay ranchers for doing this stuff. David Ogilvy made the most effective, well, he, he made the healthiest riparian area in North America for free. He didn't charge you a cent. But he needs to be paid. He should be paid. We pay a lot of other people to create places that grow no flycatchers. Why not pay somebody to create the largest population now? And here's a, we're helping out a, another new ranch, a new ranch on the, uh, on the Navajo Reservation with Gloria Totacini. There's too much for me to talk about here today. We're running out of time, but um, we've got, uh, there's a whole lot more stories and a whole lot more to this story and a whole lot more complete a development of what I just told you in, in the book, uh, the Gardeners of Eden Rediscovering Our Importance to Nature. I've got some. I'd be happy to sell them to you uh, afterwards. Actually, uh, the um, Colorado College will sell them to you. But anyway, thanks a lot, and I'll be looking forward to your questions. And, uh, this afternoon with our panel respondents and discussants that uh, regarding uh, our challenge speaker uh, laid out by Dan Daggett, with regard to uh, the new ranch. Fortunately, we have five participants, uh, panelists, and, and one is a team. Doc and Connie Hatfield, Doc and County are in the middle, uh, have, have roots that have in, been in agriculture in the West since the early 1800s. Connie's family was in Colorado and Oklahoma, Doc's in Western Oregon. They met at Colorado State University, where Doc earn, earned his veterinary degree, and Connie majored in home economics. 
After 10 years of living in Victor, Montana, they began a rawhide desert ranch near Brothers, Oregon, in 1976. Today, their son and daughter-in-law, with their, with their, their son and daughter-in-law, they run a 400 mother cows on 30,000 acres of desert rangeland and wild meadows. Since 1980, they have been active in building rancher environmentalist coalitions to solve problems on the land. Their main passion the past 20 years has been country natural beef, a cooperative that now consists of 70 ranch members and 30 prospective members who together own over 100,000 mother cows and operate on well over 4 million acres of rangeland. In 2004, Whole Foods Market asked the Country Natural Beef to supply uh, their 23 stores in Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, Louisiana, and Kansas. Efforts are underway to build a sister organization east of the Rockies, which would be a means to market uh, additional uh, uh, beef in, in another region in the retail food and service accounts. Um, they'd be able to touch a heck of a lot more customers. Next to Doc and Connie is Brian Reuter. Brian is the co-founder and CEO of New Seasons Market, located in, in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Brian has been very involved in, in the community. He's been a volunteer driving for Meals on Wheels and other activities. He's also served on the Board of Loaves and Fishes on the Advisory Committee for the Portland Public Market and is the co-chair of the Portland Multnomah Food Policy Council. Brian is the recipient of the 2004 Urban League Equal Opportunity Award and the 2004 St. Andrew's Church Martin Luther King Jr. Medal of Honor for Social and Economic Justice. New Season Market has been awarded the Oregon Governor's Gold Award and the Portland Rotary Environmental Achievement Award. Brian lives in Portland, Oregon with his wife Eileen Brady. They are the parents of four children. Next to Brian is Dale Laster. Dale has been the managing partner of Lasseter Ranch, a family-owned cattle operation founded in 1882 since, <clears throat> and Brian has been the, the, the managing partner since 1986. In 1997, he was a founding partner of Lasseter Grasslands Beef, a company marketing beef raised and finished on grass. Dale has lived in Mexico and Colombia, where he's worked in a cattle improvement program with Peace Corps. Following graduation from Princeton University, Dale spent a year studying as a Fulbright Scholar at the University of Buenos Aires in Argentina. In 2002, he was awarded the Slow Food Award for Biodiversity in Turin, Italy. Dale and his wife, Janine, have two sons, Alex and Tom, who are involved in business in Mexico and the Far East. Next to Dale is John Schiffer. John's parents came west during the Second World War because his father was in the was an in the Army remount stationed at Fort Robinson, Nebraska. After the war, they bought a ranch in northeastern Wyoming and subsequently moved to Johnson County in 1957 to ranch west of the town of KC. John graduated from Colorado College in 1967. He joined the Navy for four years, during which time he married his wife, Nancy, also a Colorado College graduate. They returned to Wyoming in 1971 and went into ranching full-time first in a cow-calf yearling operation, and then moved to their present location east of KC. 
John served on the Johnson County School Board for nine years and then ran successfully for a, Senate, for a seat in the Wyoming State Senate in 1993. He has served on various committees and currently is majority floor leader. Nancy is a librarian for the KC Public School, K-12, and they are the parents of two children, Ben, a geologist working in the coal bed methane development in the Powder River Basin of Wyoming, and Wynn, also a Colorado College graduate, has her doctorate in neurobiology and does research at Brookhaven National Laboratory on Long Island. I think that John's family and mine have that same color of blood, which is the black and gold, it sounds like. We welcome all of you, and we'll open up with comments from Doc and Connie, if you go ahead. <clears throat> okay, is this working? Well, we just, uh, we've been involved in the beef business, and we just found out a little kafoobble. Country Natural Beef is supplying the whole food store in Kit Carson, and we told Caitlin we'd... In Colorado Springs. <laughs> we said, we'll have some tri-tips for the barbecue, and they went to get it, and there was a confusion. So Connie just had a three-way call with Norm in Portland, who talked with the meat guy in Colorado Springs and fixed it, I think. so. We hope we'll eat tonight. <laughs> so that isn't all. It, our box of tri-tips was a little part to part the potluck, but that doesn't have anything to do with the new ranch. It does have to do, do with, with the, the new, new ranch, ranch. because... It, it connects with the, the customer. And uh, the, he mentioned in the, the bio that uh, we are developing some sister organization east of the Rockies. And we have two, people, two couples down here, the Bledsoe's and the Johnson's. If you guys would stand up, they're both from the metropolis uh, surrounding Kit Carson. Stand so, up and turn around. So when, when you see... <laughs> When you see them at the party, chat them up. <laughs> Is that the proper way to say that, Caitlin? We've just learned about chatting. <laughs> In, anyway, just we don't have much time, but um, about it did take an hour to explain how our group went from two to three head a week to eight, 800 head a week. And, and I need to put my hat on because Brian is one of our best customers in Portland, and I'm afraid you might confuse us of me being the retailer and him being the rancher. <laughs> but um, about uh, 12 years ago, our daughter came home from college, and she said, uh, Dad, you can talk about being environmentally friendly and sustainable and ecologically sound and family ranching and watersheds and all that, but unless you can paint a picture of what that looks like, it doesn't mean zilch. And so so here's what we came up with, um, and it, it explains kind of in a picture of what country natural beef about is about. And it, it goes like this. <clears throat> we are country natural beef, a cooperative of artisan ranchers scattered across the West. Our roots extend a century and a half deep to a time when many of our ancestors were crossing the Oregon Trail. We have a passion to communicate our beliefs about the land through a beef product you can savor and trust. Our product is more than beef. It's the smell of sage after a summer thunderstorm, the cool shade of a ponderosa pine forest. 
It's 80-year-old weathered hand saddling a horse in the Blue Mountains. The future of a six-year-old in a one-room school on the high desert. It's a trout in a beaver-built pond, haystacks on an aspen-framed meadow. It's the hardy quail running to join the cattle for a meal, the welcoming ring of a dinner bell at dusk. And, and that's what we're about. Uh, and as he mentioned, we've got 70 full-time members that have been around uh, forever and about 30 potential members who've got cattle in the program. And I guess the important thing on the new ranch piece is that, that we have well over 4 million acres under Food Alliance third-party certification for the environmental practices, the care of the animals, the, the care of the, the help on the ranch. And maybe Connie will tell a, a quick story of how we got together. Why don't you tell about Ace and Grace? Uh, yes, 20 years ago, we were just plain going broke. And I think most of you who know farmers and ranchers know that we can whine quite a bit about how tough things are. And we were doing a pretty good job of that, but going broke right along with it. So I went into our hometown, which is 55 miles from the ranch, Bend, Oregon. It's in the center of the state of Oregon. And talked to a fitness person. Now, there was one fitness place in Bend, Oregon there. There's nine of them now. Our town has changed. But this one man named Ace, and the students in here might not know who Jacqueline Lane was, but the old folks will. <laughs> so kind of a fitness kind of person. And this was a 25-year-old Jack Lane. And he uh, kind of came skipping out. And he said, what can I do for you? And I said, well, we're ranchers out here. And I like your opinion of red meat because all you could hear is don't eat red meat. It's bad for you. The ranchers are raping the land. They're not caring for it. And it was really a negative situation. And I said, um, I said, what do you think of red meat? He said, I recommend it at least three times a week for my fitness people. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty good. And he just kept talking. He said, yeah, but we're having the hardest time getting Argentina beef in here to Bend, Oregon. And I said, Argentina beef, why is that? No hormones, no antibiotics, and it's short-fed. It doesn't have that excess fat. He said, that's a product I really wish we could get. Well, as I drove home, I said, you call yourself a rancher, you're going broke. And right here in our town, there was a market for what we would really believe in. Thing is, we'd never gotten together. We'd never sold, talked with anybody about how to sell. We didn't know what to do. So that's how we got together. And what we did was called several of our other ranch acquaintances, I guess you would say. We were almost a 200-mile radius. We were ranches that are kind of out of the box, or like Doc said, uh, carpenters uh, level and the, the bubble can be off. We're a bubble off <laughs> from the norm. But we learned a lot, and from that day to this, we have listened to customers. And they are the most gracious, wonderful people they live in the cities. They live in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco is where our main markets are. We go and we talk. Each ranch family once a year goes to the city, drives in all the traffic, and we talk with customers, and they share with us how pleased they are that we are, that we are working on our land issues, knowing where the product comes from, knowing we care. A lot of the questions we get are, how do, they, how do the cattle feel about being killed? That's a question we get a lot of. <laughs> and Doc says, when my time comes, I hope it will be as kind. And you know, that's 
kind of true sometimes. In, in. So what we want to say is that we feel we have sustainable ranches now, and that's because 11 young families have come back to the ranches in 20 years. And at our last meeting, we had 25 little kiddos under five. So I call that sustainability. And, uh, and then I had a saying that um, Stan Amy taught us. I'm dyslexic. I got the word wrong, but it's become a word to us now. And it's decommodify. And we have decided that we need to come out of commodity, and I even am a rascal enough to say decommodify or die. I think that's what we have to do in agriculture. doesn't matter if you're raising, um, if you're raising cattle, if you're raising cropland, whatever. But take the pride as farmers and ranchers and take your product to the consuming public, and it's the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to us. What, uh, what wonderful ambassadors for, a, uh, for the ranching industry. I think that, uh, Doc, your, your comment sounded like it's beef. It's what's for dinner. <laughs> Very nice. Brian, go ahead and tell us about uh, New Seasons. Well, I'm very honored to be part of this panel here this afternoon, but I have to brag about something else just for a second, which is um, I'm wearing this Colorado College uh, T-shirt, and I'm wearing that because I am the proud stepfather of Caitlin O'Brady, who is uh, putting on the conference here, so um, I wanted to recognize her. I want to tell you just a little bit about our company so you can get a sense of what we're talking about. Um, we have seven stores in Portland, Oregon. We've been around for six years. Um, our stores are average about 30,000 square feet, which makes them about the size of um, the older King Supers or Safeways that are around. They're fairly large stores. This week, we'll do business with maybe 120,000 customers this week, this, this seven days that we're in right now, which is about 10% of the population of the Portland metropolitan area. So the messages that we share with our customers, we believe, actually has an opportunity to impact um, what happens in, in our community. And we believe that market forces are as or more likely than government policy to impact the environmental issues that we're facing. And so we're excited to be in a position where we can help with that. Um, we see our role as being the link between urban dwellers who want to do the right thing, who are interested in doing the right thing, but don't necessarily have the time to learn about it or have the knowledge. And so we want to connect those people with responsible rural producers. And I've been doing business with Doc and Connie and the co-op for um, probably 16 or 17 years through a few different businesses that I've been involved in. And they are great ambassadors for the Northwest ethic. And um, we hear a lot in Oregon, and I don't know that much about Colorado politics, but in Oregon we hear quite a bit about the urban-rural divide and that somehow there's no way to get people who live in the city and people that live in the country to see the world through the same lens. And there's different perspectives that we have on many issues, and, and Doc and Connie and I have learned a lot from each other about how to talk to each other. But what we've learned most of all is that the values that we share around the environment, around family, around the health of our land and the health of the food that we eat, 
that is such a strong connector that, that over, overcomes any of the other issues that, that we might not agree on. And when it comes down to putting healthy food on the table, to creating healthy communities, whether they be healthy communities in the Portland area or healthiest community over in, on the east side of the Cascades where a lot of our beef comes from, what we say is there are no blue or red counties when it comes down to that issue. We all see the world the same way. It's a great unifier. Um, and so what we do at New Seasons Market is we do our best to share information with our customers about how the beef is grown, where it comes from. We identify where, where all the beef comes from or all the meat that we, we sell. We identify where all it comes from. And we find that customers faced with a choice and faced with the information in Portland, Oregon, are going to choose to buy ground beef that comes from Brothers, Oregon, as opposed to ground beef that comes from Argentina. Many times people think that this market for natural beef is limited to well-off people. And I just want to describe for you a little bit about where our stores are located. We have some stores that are in higher-income suburban neighborhoods, and we also have um, three stores, actually four stores, that we've opened in densely populated urban neighborhoods where th our predecessors, we were opening stores where there were grocery stores that went out of business. And we're going back into those stores and reopening them as New Seasons Markets. And the reason why the other stores went out of business is because those neighborhoods are not high-income neighborhoods, and the large national chains decided that they would pull out because they could make money elsewhere. So we're able, by sharing the information in a really transparent manner, how it's grown, where it's come from, by having the ranchers come to the stores and meet the people. Um, this, I can't overemphasize how important that is. We opened a new store Wednesday, six days ago, um, and there's a couple of ranch families that came down on day one and were there in the meat department um, sharing information about their families and how the beef is grown. It doesn't hurt that these people are incredibly good-looking people either. I just want to, and I, I've noticed that the the women kind of drifting off into the into the meat department area to to meet the ranchers. Um, that doesn't hurt the cause at all. But but having the ranchers in the stores um, so that the consumers can put a face on where their food comes from really makes all the difference in the world. We price the products competitively. It's not cheap. It's not super expensive. Um, a pound of ground beef, for those of you who understand prices, we sell a pound of ground beef for $2.99 a pound. Um, that's Oregon country beef. That's 10% or less fat ground beef. And that's, you know, that's not 99-cent ground beef that you buy on sale somewhere, but it's not $5 a pound ground beef that you can buy at the more upscale markets. So share the information. Price it at a price that people can afford. Um, have the ranchers come in to visit emphasize the shared values, and we believe that you can create a market force that will help keep our ranchers in business and help um, make sure that we have environmentally strong practices um, in our rural areas and that we actually have food security. We, we find it interesting that there's all this emphasis about our national security, and we think that it's important, and we think, obviously, where our oil comes from is important. And, but can you imagine if there was no food 
and we had to, if, if there was, they have, an, they have a stop of oil being imported would be one thing. But to have our food stop being imported, con- considering how much land there is available uh, to grow food would be a real catastrophe for us. So keeping our farmers and our ranchers in business in the areas surrounding our urban centers is really important. Um, I'm excited that Oregon Country Beef is and Country Natural Beef is is in the Rockies, um, trying to replicate the system that we've established in the Pacific Northwest here. Because having local food supply is important, and so um, I encourage uh, the people here who live in the Rockies to learn about this and do what you can to support the ranchers and the retailers here who are trying to do similar things. So thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Brian. Uh, Dale, you're from the Laster Ranches. The, uh, the, for those in the audience, Laster Ranches is probably is, is well known nationally and nationally recognized for wise stewardship of their land. They've been the subject of many uh, articles in national publications and also a number of documentaries on, uh, on television. Tell us about your operation, uh, Dan. Thank you, Jack. Uh, it is a privilege to be here today on this panel and uh, be able to <coughs> attend some of these sessions. I was at the sessions yesterday, very interesting and informative. I wish I could attend them all this week. So I really appreciate what Caitlin and Andrew and Brian and their team, as well as their leader, Walt Hecox, have put together and feel privileged to be a part of it. <clears throat> uh, Dale, can you pull that a little bit closer? I think I may be having Thank trouble you. in the back. How, how's that? Thank you. Uh, Caitlin and her cohorts put together a little folder for us, which for the speakers and panelists. And I'm at the age where I appreciate a lot of detailed information on where we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to get there. So <laughs> I, I appreciate that. There, there was one minor thing missing. Uh, after the session yesterday afternoon, <clears throat> I lingered here visiting with a few people. And by the time I got out to the reception area there and beyond this hall, <clears throat> it was quite a layout of food and various kinds of goodies. And I wasn't particularly hungry, but one item did catch my eye. And I approached that table, and I was actually reaching out to grab one of these chocolate-covered strawberries when this young man tapped me on the shoulder and said, Sir, those are for the artists. <laughs> and I'm, 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 not, I'm not certain what tipped him off, but he... he <laughs> He, he, was, he was quite confident that those particular items weren't for me. <laughs> so I, I backed away and tried to proceed. I'm going to, through this week, you're going to hear lots of knowledgeable people and very informed people on a variety of subjects, ranging from conservation to climate and so on. I'm going to have a, a, my goal is fairly limited in the few moments I'm going to share with you today, and, and that's to focus on, on four words, <clears throat> and those four prairie dogs and farm subsidies. And that would seem like an odd coupling of words or subjects, <clears throat> probably, and I guess there's, there's a fifth word that t- ties those two together, and maybe, maybe the buzzword of the last 20 years. 
sustainability. So on, on one end of the spectrum, we have the prairie dog, a much maligned and <coughs> degraded part of the American West with few defenders. On the other end of the spectrum, we have a very massive thing called the farm program, farm subsidies. And there we see, in this case, in a negative way, the tremendous power of government and the influence of money and what it, what it can, the kinds of effects it can have. <clears throat> I'm going to digress briefly just to recount some similar perhaps to other ranching families like Doc and Connie. Our family came west over a period of generations, uh, Virginia, Tennessee, Arkansas, ending up in Texas in 1850, and then made the move about 90 years later to out here east of town to eastern Colorado. So we use 1882 as the starting point for our family cattle business. Prior to that, various family members raised sheep and Civil War era horses and mules. So one thing led to another, and we ended up in the beef business. And my father got involved in the picture 1930s, the time between arriving in South Texas in the 1890s in Colorado in the 1940s, lots of ups and downs, typical of the West, the cyclical business, and so on. Dad ended up creating a new breed of cattle and created a niche market selling seed stock, which continues to be our primary business. <clears throat> and nine years ago, we began selling grass-finished beef in partnership with Duke Phillips from the Chico Basin Ranch and a, and a few other ranching colleagues. Our grass-fed beef is sold mainly over the internet and to customers on the, on the two coasts. We have a few scattered in between, but heaviest concentration of customers are on the coast. We've had a different experience than Doc and Connie, but parts of it would overlap, and certainly what Connie said about customer feedback and learning. Uh, I'm sure we could get together and tell, tell a few war stories, horror stories of one kind or another, and uh, it has been a tremendous learning process for us, even, even on the small, uh, family ranch scale that we operate. <clears throat> Returning to prairie dogs, uh, in 2005, last year, our family partnership spent some time and money reintroducing prairie dogs to our piece of land out east of town. My father had overseen the successful eradication of prairie dogs in the more than more than 50 years ago. It's ironic because I've run cattle on a lot of leased ranches and other places where they've been attempting to get rid of them for that, that long or longer, but, but have been unsuccessful. Dad, Dad was successful, and again, in a quirk of fate, within a few years, he had decided that he'd made the 
made the wrong decision. And during the 1960s and 70s, several ranching friends brought truckloads of prairie dogs from Arizona and Texas to, to our place and d dumped them out on the prairie. They were happy to get rid of them. And, but once they were dumped out, we never saw them again. So uh, that didn't, didn't work. Last, last year, we got together and collaborated with some people that are, have had experience in this area and know how to do it. And they, they took the time and made all the preparations that apparently they've successfully been reintroduced into an area on the ranch where uh, close to, as close as we can think where one, one of the original towns was. <clears throat> so uh, the local reaction uh, ranged somewhere between disbelief and anger, <laughs> and our neighbors and colleagues, you know, t typically are a little dumbfounded that someone would uh, go to the effort to reintroduce prairie dogs. Uh, perhaps the negative reaction reached a crescendo one, one late night phone call from a neighbor who made a series of threatening statements. We think maybe he'd had too much to drink. We, we certainly hope so. So why waste time talking about prairie dogs, much less spending money and time uh, fooling with them. Well, contrary to the Department of Agriculture uh, listing of them as a pest, and that four-letter word to most of us would fully define what they are, they in fact are a keystone species that live in close community with a hundred other species or more of birds, mammals, and reptiles, including nine that are quite dependent on them, such as the black-footed ferret. So to me, the prairie dog symbolizes the uh, one of the seemingly insignificant pieces in the land that we are privileged to live on and be stewards of that are important. And it's easy to focus only on the big things and the pretty things but there are lots of small things from prairie dogs to red ants, pocket gophers, all sorts of things out there. That So I, I think that when traditional ranching families like our own, as, as well as new owners, uh, come to understand and not, not just tolerate that prairie dogs exist and can't be eradicated in some cases, but in fact embrace that they are an important part of the of the land that we love and an important part of the health of that land and the sustainability. And I think you know, we'll, we will have come a long ways to understanding. At the other end of the spectrum, we have farm subsidies. <clears throat> and this is a massive thing. Uh, Andrew, I think, made, made reference to it. It, 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 is, it is, there's a brief passage in the report card on on farm subsidies. And here, here we see, you know, the very powerful arm of government and huge amounts of money. And contrary to the 
the role of the prairie dog in sustainability, we have subsidies pushing everything in, in the other direction. That is being a major factor in hastening the demise of the family farm and ranch, not only in this country but around the world, and greatly damaging topsoil over millions of acres and pushing industrialized food production. I like what Connie said about <coughs> connecting food producers with consumers and you know ha having having that direct communication that direct response and that direct accountability decommodifying in other words not not just having commodities that someone produced somewhere on a massive scale some of you may have seen last month in the Wall Street Journal March 14 the, the lead story on the front page was about farm subsidies and it went into some detail on some of the negative aspects and why so many very disparate groups, religious, political, right, left, are banding together to oppose the continuation of this system, which probably started with the best of intentions 60 or 70 years ago, but like a lot of things, has become a very negative force, not just in the Middle West with this monoculture of millions of acres of corn and other feed grains, but throughout throughout the West. If you saw, I won't repeat much of the article, but if you saw the article, uh, several figures might have hit you. Or 20, 23 billion in subsidies last year in this country and and this country in Europe, maybe close to 70 billion. So you know we're not talking about small change; we're talking about huge amounts of money, and again, most most of it uh, misdirected. That is ha having a very negative result on land sustainability, ownership, and so on. Seventy-two percent of the subsidies go to ten percent of the recipients. <clears throat> so that gives gives some idea of how concentrated it is. But you'll be glad to know that there there is a cap on the annual amount that can be given to a, a single farmer, and that's 360000 The fallout from subsidies is not just on the cornfields of the Middle West and other grain production. It affects all of us involved with producing meat and milk. Uh, throughout the West. <clears throat> Cattle are ruminants and their digestive system is made to be able to harvest forages that you and I can't eat and digest and turn those forages into human food, mainly milk and meat. And the fallout of the farm subsidy program is that most of what we eat, which in centuries past and from the beginning of time, came from forages, now it's produced by grain. <clears throat> and so we, we can talk about chickens, pork, lamb, beef. It all comes from grain now. It's all finished on grain uh, with a lot of changes in, in what it is nutritionally. And I'm, there, there are a lot of things that have been researched. Uh, one website you might go to if the subject interests you is called eat, eatwild.com. One word, eat, eat wild. And Joe Robinson has written a book about grass-fed products 
details a lot of research that's been done there and I'm sure there's a lot of research that will need to be done in the future. <clears throat> but the, the net result is our, our diet changed very radically uh, due to this post-World War II grain production, which has been fomented in succeeding years by these farm subsidies. <clears throat> and that change in diet wasn't something that we went looking for or that someone thought would be a good thing. It's something that happened because we had all this grain. And someone said, well, you know, what are we going to do with it? In the 50s, we had every, every bend between Lyman, Colorado, and Chicago full of grain. And the government was paying storage on this grain. And we, we kept producing. So someone said, well, we'll feed it to livestock. So that, that's what happened. So now every, everything that we eat is grain-based. And there are a lot of things that we don't know about human health, but uh, certainly it would not be surprising to find that some major shift in our diet had some connection to the types of things that, that are afflicting us in terms of <clears throat> degenerative diseases. Uh, grass-fed beef, grass-fed chicken, pork, lamb, any of it costs more to produce than grain-fed beef. That wouldn't be the case, of course, if if the grain fed end of things weren't heavily subsidized, 23 billion, just to keep that in mind. Don't don't misunderstand one thing. I don't I don't think anyone food, eating is a, not just to nourish our bodies, but it is a central factor in, a, in human life in terms of maintaining families, creating community, and just giving pleasure, the pleasure of eating. So I'm not suggesting that anyone should eat anything just to save the family farm or save the world. But uh, grass-fed beef has a, does have a unique flavor. It has a flavor that we've, many of us have not experienced in the last 50 years, but for many centuries before that, that's the only flavor we knew. And so, for many people, it is a return to something basic and real and unadulterated by uh, recent changes. Someone once said that eating is a moral activity, and we might paraphrase that to say that eating is also political activity. I hope that those of you who are in the audience who are already leaders will join the campaign to end the farm subsidy program as we know it today. And those of you who are in the process of becoming leaders, I hope the same thing. And in the meantime, each of us vote every day when we buy food. And with each dollar that you spend on chicken, pork, lamb, beef, that is grass-produced, I think you have a chance to vote for something that's pure, and a, a process, a way of producing food that's totally sustainable. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dale. Those are very insightful and thought-provoking comments, uh, particularly with regard to subsidies and sustainability. Um, I know that we'll have some further dialogue regarding those. John? 
Um, thank you, Jack. Is this microphone about right? Can you hear me okay? Uh, well, Jack, thank you, and, and uh, Caitlin and your crew, thank you. This is really great. Um, I had the privilege last summer to visit with some of the students that, that are part of this project up at the uh, Ucross Ranch up in Johnson County, where I'm from. And uh, it, it was really a privilege. I, although the next time, uh, would you send people that don't ask quite so tough a question? I'm not used to that in politics. We field the easy questions. We don't go where there's hard questions. So, Caitlin, I'll ask you to please uh, bring the level down on next year's tour, if you would. Um, the other thing, it, I don't know how many of you got up early this morning, about 5 o'clock or so. It, the, the, if you happen to look over towards Pikes Peak, there was a full moon right over it. And, and, and I graduated from Colorado College, and, and I suspect I wouldn't have appreciated it if I had seen it when I was a student. But you forget how beautiful this part of the world is and, and this institution. It, it's really neat, and it was just a gorgeous morning, and, and, and here's the old moon hanging out there. It's, it's worth coming to see. Um, I did gr graduate from Colorado College in 67, uh, and, and uh, it, it, my, the education has stood me in good stead. My wife Nancy and I moved to the ranch we're on uh, in 72. And, uh, and, and just to give you a, a rough description, it's on Powder River, a uh, mile wide and an inch deep, uh, too thick to to uh, drink and too thin to plow. Um, it, it's a wretched old stream, uh, but I love it. Uh, our ranch is about 22,000 acres of net surface. Of the 22,000 acres, the net mineral acres are 660. That is, the mineral portion that I own underneath that ranch is 660 mineral acres. And I'll come back to that a little later on. That's fairly typical. Uh, most of the other minerals belong to the federal government or to the state of Wyoming. Uh, I've got a couple other private holders of minerals, but they're inconsequential. Um, we, we first started learning and hearing about holistic resource management in 87. Uh, quite frankly, we went and heard about it. We went, went to Albuquerque and, and heard about it and thought about it. and and. Uh, I think I moved slow now. I guess I moved slow then. It took us a couple of years. We, we walked and talked and, and uh, visited about it. And, uh, and then we, it took about a year and a half, two years, before we ever really started doing much. Uh, since then, we've been practicing it ever since then. Um, it's, it's, our, our objective is to grow grass, to have a healthy ranch. That's, that's what we're looking for. We want plants to be healthy. I'll be honest with you, I don't really care too much what grows. Uh, what I care is that it be healthy. What I find is um, that, that that improves the ranch operation. That's what I'm looking for, um, particularly in, in, in over the last 30 years. Prices go up, prices go down. If you can control your costs, you can stay in business. And in ranching, staying in business, at least from my perspective, because I love it, uh, that's success for me. I'll do it. Uh, I got into politics uh, in 93. I ran for the Wyoming Senate. Uh, initially, I had, I think, six or seven opponents. Uh, I ran for a vacant seat. I had two or three. I forget what. Uh, after that, I had one. The last two times I've run, I had no opponents. 
Uh, I guess, I don't know what that says. Uh, either people are glad to have me leave my hand and get the hell out from underfoot, or, or they must like what I'm doing. I don't know. I'm the majority floor leader. I uh, pretty much run what goes on in, in the Senate and the agenda. Uh, I was lucky enough when I first went down there to bask people from both sides, both the Spanish and the French side of the Pyrenees, uh, basically sheep operations. Um, it, there's, there, there's a number of them. And uh, the representative from Johnson County was a Basque's wing. And thank God he did, but he gave me some good advice. Uh, he said, John, before you start criticizing people, before you start commenting on where they're coming from or where they're going, walk a mile in their shoes. And uh, uh, John, you know, what, what do you mean? He said, well, there's three great things about that. If you walk a mile in their shoes, you kind of understand where they're coming from. And in politics, that's important. That's, that's the first thing. It's the, he said, the second thing is that if you go to criticize them, if you've walked a mile in their shoes, you're a mile away from them. <laughs> he said, and the third thing is, you got their shoes. He said, and that's a really good deal in politics. So I've always, he, he was a good friend and a good mentor. One other thing in, in looking over the, the report card uh, yesterday evening, and, and, and where I'm going with this, I'm going to talk about new ranching. And I'm going to talk about it in terms of particularly natural gas, Powder River Basin, and particularly my Senate district encompasses virtually all of the coal bed methane development uh, in, in northeastern Wyoming. Uh, I've lived with that sucker since 1999. Uh, it's both good and it's bad. We'll establish a little bit on it. And I'm going to tie it back to, to, to what was mentioned earlier, new ranching. But I'd like to make a comment. And I, I applaud the, the efforts in looking at where we're going with children. Um, I, I, that, that's in the other report cards. I think it's very well done. But one of the counties that came to my, that, that I looked at, and you've got to go look at your own state, then you look at your own county. How are we doing? I mean, that's, we've got to find that out. But one of the counties that was mentioned has, has been did very well with Sublette County. It's a rather small county over in the middle of the state. Um, Sublet County, in terms of family support and under the children's section, was number six for rural counties and was also number six for... Uh, let me tell you, Sublet County produces more natural gas than the entire Powder River Basin, both in Wyoming and Montana. Mammoth production. To give you some idea of the boom that's going on there. This building is supposed to be completed in June, a new 150-room motel. One of the energy companies has rented that hotel, that motel, for the next three years for their employees. That's where their employees are going to live. That really is. That's the impact. Um, and, and, and I'm going to characterize that play, uh, that natural gas play, it's basically three companies, uh, larger companies. I, I'm not, I don't know them too well. I know one of them very well is all, that, that is also in the coal bed methane play, but that's deep, deep gas. Uh, and from what I've read and heard and watched, um, they're doing a, some problems with wildlife, um, with antelope, with my, migration routes for them with pygmy rabbits, and particularly with the sage grouse. But my read is they're trying to address those. Let me move back to the Powder River Basin or anybody else. Um, a couple things you need to know 
um, we're coming, we, we, I don't know, I hope we're out. We've been in five years of drought. Um, water is really scarce. Uh, reservoir water is virtually not. A um, couple terms that I don't think were in the report, surface use agreements. That's the agreement that, it, that the surface owner makes with the operator. It spells out in detail what is to be done and how it's to be done. It is in any mineral development. Your surface use agreement is the Bible. Um, the term bond on, we use it all the time. Oh, my neighbor got bonded on. That means that the mineral company used him to come in and force entry onto his ranch. Uh, split estate, that's where, you, particularly my case, uh, I own the surface and uh, somebody else owns all but 660 acres. That's my mineral. In about uh, 2000, in the 1999-2000, I started getting phone calls from constituents talking about coal bed methane, talking about people bonding on, talking about companies. At that time, there were roughly 120 operators in River Basin. Um, big, little, you name it, many of them, one-horse outfits, one rig. Um, my constituents were obviously upset. Many of these companies came out, and, and I'll try not to mention names of companies. I'm not supposed to do that, um, but uh, came out of Detroit. Um, some of them were offshoots of, of very reputable, established, well-operated companies, mostly out of Houston in that case. Some out of Denver, although Houston was the main place. Um, my constituents are saying these people are bonding on. We had almost never in the mineral industry, in, in all the years that at least I've been in Wyoming, with coal bed methane, it, it was a rush. People were bonding on. Um, my constituents, I, I guess to characterize them, they do live down on Powder River. Many of them live 20 miles from their nearest neighbor because they want to live 20 neighbor. That's the kind of folks they are. They like it. Um, in, in visiting with them, and as we've worked through this, we're now down to um, operators in the coal bed methane industry. There's about 11. We've come down from, from about 11 big operators, a few smaller ones. Some of them are really good, and some of them, quite frankly, are. Over the years, what I found when constituents called up the first question I'd ask is not what happened, is who's your And it, it gradually became apparent. On the one hand, I could say these up over and over and over. And these operators I never hear about, never. It's very consistent company to company. Quite frankly, it's also consistent to a certain extent. I know them pretty well. I can about tell you which ones I have trouble with or which ones are going to have trouble. What I'm finding over the poorer companies, the poorer operators, the ones I heard about, we're down to about three now, I think. The ranch, has those same guys calling up. I went out the other day and visited one, and I was amazed, and the reason I went to visit, a coal bed methane operator onto his place. Uh, he is, he stood him off longer than, and I said, gee, Kenny, I gotta come look and see, and he said, come on. And it was very strange. This bonded on to uh, earlier this winter by a large company. Uh, the company, when they bonded on, they bonded on 
I came right across his calving pasture. Uh, that's critical to us. And the, uh, Kenny's calving right now. Really don't want big water trucks, drilling rigs, crew trucks, um, all those kind of people coming through your calving pad. You're calving. Uh, he fought them off, but they bonded on. I said, now show me the company that you let on. It was a tiny one. I happened to know him. One keeps the records and one runs the drilling rig. Kenny is working with that. With that. And what he's doing, um, he's trying to sub-irrigate some rangeland. And, and the only way I can describe it, leach field for a septic tank. Only they're going to use coal bed methane, treated coal bed methane water. Geologists, it's helping set, set this system up. Uh, there's one other. I haven't seen it. But the geologist says it may work. right and gradients are right and all sorts of technical things. Um, but here is, is one tough cow stood, um, actually all the big companies, and found a little company that would work with him to improve his and his cattle operation. And, and I really do hope it works. Uh, he deserves it. Um, that you'll find, and, and as I mentioned, we're in a drought, and, and water is really scarce. The number of the, the surface owners, in, in their, in, and they have to negotiate it in their surface use. They do two things. They become the contractor to take care of the water. And, and cobud methane encases massive amounts of water in the course of production. That's how you get the, the methane gas to come up out. I've seen a number of, of really creative ways of doing this, putting it into pipe. Uh, it's taking, taking it to storage tanks, uh, some of it into reservoirs. Um, um, in my estimation, at least some of those ranchers, given the drought we've been in, created a good surface use agreement and used that water, they would be out of business now. Business, if they're careful, they've been doing some contract work, they've seen some cash flow from that, and it's better. The second area where I've seen some real success is in reclamation. Now, Wyoming has reclamation. Um, it's mediocre at best, uh, depending what is involved. These operators have said, we'll do the reclamation, pay us to do it. Um, the one, and again, I'm going, uh, that I mentioned earlier, they've done it using strictly um, broadcast seeding, feedly down the pipelines to get that grass to reseed and using cattle as, as the cultivator. It works phenomenally well, and what's more, the rancher's getting paid to run his cows and feed them, which normally he wouldn't get paid. I've seen quite a bit of that. Um, it's spread kind of from ranch to ranch. It's the same thing that Dan was talking about earlier. Almost nothing, um, but you gotta be pretty creative how you do it and when you do it. Um, another, um, this is, a manager um, for, for a really large ranch, uh, he, somewhere around 130,000 acres, maybe a little more than that, right up on the line. Most of it's uh, part of it over into Montana. A uh, good cowboy and a good manager. Um, company that came on, um, pretty good sized company, in my estimation, a good company. Uh, water in that entire 130,000 acres. So pipelines, reservoirs, you've got to be pretty creative to an outfit like that. Uh, he's done an excellent job. I visited, I said, how do you get along with, with your operator? He said, actually, I get along very good with my operator. What I find is 
If I'm out there and pay attention, I can solve most problems in 20 minutes over a pickup hood by looking at the map and looking at what they're doing. If I ever let it get back to the company headquarters, what I can get done in 20 minutes will take them at least two months to solve. And that's why I say he's a good cowboy and he's a good operator. Uh, he's done a good job. He's got a good company. I made them of then saying, does that company have the entire lease? Unfortunately, they don't. He's going to get two new partners over on my list on the left-hand side. Um, we visit a little bit about it, and his approach was, I'm going to set the same bar, the same surface use agreement that I have with those two smaller operators. I hope he can do it. Um, another uh, company that, that came in or has come in, they're local, uh, two brothers, creative things. Um, one, they're doing the leach field disposal, and, and I, I really do hope that I mentioned earlier. Another thing that they're doing is setting up, and, and I describe these, but there, there are people who want to come out and see wetlands, and they're recreating wetlands. And uh, I looked at, when I was out in the same neighborhood, I looked at that. They're nothing more than a reservoir. They're like duck blinds along the edge. And that rancher is charging people to come take pictures of this wetlands and, and prairie birds that gather there. And uh, he's booked full for this summer. Operator and a rancher getting together. One's got to dispose of water and one's going to sell um, a little puddle in the middle of Powder River breaks. And, and more power to him. I think it's great. Um, are there some problems? I'm going to be a little careful about the problems. I'll use, uh, and we have some minerals. Um, I had a company to be an uranium company. We also have uranium up in that part of the world. And uh, I can't keep the uh, eminent domain in Wyoming is very favorable to a mineral company. Uh, the best I can do is be re- And uh, they wanted to send a crew in to do some, some site locations. It's actually clean in the instance of uranium. And I said, that's okay with me. Um, I won't even charge a lot. And my wife is out there by herself. And I said, the one thing I ask is that you bring in a drug-free crew. And the operator was furious at first. He, uh, he used some... He, he, he was angry. That's, that's not right. I said, that's reasonable. No charge, but you have to guarantee me a drug-free crew. About a week later, he um, said he couldn't do it. So understand, folks, there's some problems out there. Um, we've since kind of worked that out. I was also asked to talk about water management a, a little bit. And, I, and I, I'm getting away from, from the new ranching that Dan had mentioned, water management on a, on a state. You know, last summer I took a tour with, with Wyoming's governor and, and, and Montana's governor. And, and I, we went around to some of the ranchers and operators and Montana was talking about raising their water quality standards. When Powder River crosses the state line, Wyoming has to meet Montana's standards. And Montana was going to make their standards much more rigorous. And hell, we can't meet their standards right now. So that didn't look like a good deal. But we went around. Um, it's a funny thing. Uh, our governor is, is a lawyer. And, and, you know, it's kind of like the carpenter 
If you're a carpenter, every problem solved with a hammer and nail. If your governor's a lot, you finish that because I got to get along with the guy next session. But um, it's, I'm worried there. We're, we're going to have trouble, and we did not get it resolved. We had a number of frank discussions about it, but we didn't make much progress. That's worrisome. Um, beneficial water. Um, it's a stretch, at least for some ranchers, to say that if you turn water down an ephemeral stream, you're going to improve it. I can tell you, you will not improve it. Um, it will deteriorate. Uh, that is a problem, and that's what's, and, and I don't like it much, and, and we're going to do something about that. Um, there again, politics being what it is, uh, we have a task force. Uh, politics being what it is in Wyoming, uh, and me being an ag producer, not on that task force, it's mineral people. So we'll see what happens with that deal. The, okay. That's kind of where we're at in terms of, of Wyoming and, and methane. It can work out with good people working together. We can make these deals work to the benefit of the landowner and minerals. Thank you very much, John. <laughs>